Let's talk about education. I think it's common. Okay, here, listen to me really carefully on this, this core point. Hopefully, I can unpack it for you well. I think it's common for Christians to think of education primarily as revolving around a combination of grades, getting certain grades, um, career advancement in the future. And for Christian parents, protecting their kids from worldly influences. Would you agree with me on that? Okay, so primarily it's about grades. It's about career advancement, opportunities to get a good job. And protection from the world. I'll just tell you right up front, I reject all of that. I don't think any of those, or any two of them, or all three of them, is a proper Christian view of education. I just don't. I should not be at the center. But before I comment further on that, let me just say that I have um, talked to many people over the years who have chosen to send their kids to public schools, Catholic schools, who have homeschooled, who have sent their kids to Christian schools, and um, not to ridicule homeschooling and Christian schooling. We, we sent our kids to Christian school for most of elementary school, but just to use those as examples because we did it. When I was in that environment a lot, I heard all the time, all the time, our kids are here because they get a good education, because they get a good education, because education's better, because they get a good education. All of our kids get you know, chosen to university. I'd hear that in presentations. It's all good education, good education. But, oh, really? Or people that chose to homeschool, well, because I don't want my kids to be around bad kids. I don't want my kids to be around bad kids. I don't want my kids to be around bad kids, right? Or you have parents that send their kids to public school because they just don't care. So in any of those schooling choices, there can be good reasons to be there and there can be bad reasons to be there. But the, the, tr the, the, the common reasons in all of those, which I think are all insufficient, is grades, career advancement, or protecting your kids from harm. I think all of those are insufficient reasons to think through what kind of education you want to put your kids in. So how do you, how do you um, make good educational choices? Keep the main thing the main thing. What is the end goal of Christian parenting? Discipleship. So what is the end goal of education? What is it? Not sure? Discipleship. So education is one piece of a larger pie that you have available to you to help your child to become a solo follower of Jesus Christ. So when you're thinking of education that way, and you're like, well, how do I, how do I use what they're going to spend a lot of their childhood doing, which is going to school? How do I use that to help my child grow as a disciple? You view education as an opportunity to equip them to think, read, deliberate, calculate. Use the education as an opportunity to develop their minds. We're to love the Lord our God with our minds, body, soul, and spirit, but minds is there. We want to develop Christian young people that have good thinking skills. So make sure they're in an environment, where, whether it's a, 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 a pagan environment, a homeschooling environment, a Christian school environment, whatever floats your boat, whatever you think will best accomplish that, to help to develop their minds, to get them thinking. So if it's an environment where they're being exposed to things that sometimes aren't true, then you want to help them to unpack those things. And if you help them to unpack those things, you're aiding in their discipleship process. If you put them in an environment where they're largely being taught things that are true, then you want to ask them the degree to which they've really understood those things and embraced those things. But in both environments, you can raise a successful disciple of Jesus Christ. You just have to approach it a little bit differently. But the commonality is your goal is to get them to think, write, read, deliberate, calculate in a truly Christian way. 
Secondly, you want to equip them with a general knowledge of the world. Why is that important? Why is a basic knowledge of maths and sciences and art and all that kind of stuff from a Christian perspective potentially redemptive? Why is it? Give me some reasons. So I'm a Christian. I have a bit of knowledge of math, science, the arts, literature. How, how, in, how is that in any way, shape, or form tied to being a disciple of Jesus Christ? How does that help me? Bingo. Bingo. Exactly. Good education gives people multiple points of intersection. So they can intersect with the world around them. So they can interpret the world. So they can interpret people. So they can interpret worldviews. So they can understand and think and socialize and dialogue and evangelize. So when your kids are like, I hate math or I, I hate art or whatever it might be. And you're like, well, I don't know. I know, I know it's not your thing, but you know, just, just please try harder. Please get a good grade. That's not a sufficient motivator. But if you can frame up art, for example, as an opportunity to express the image of God that is in you and reflect to the world the creativity and beauty of God, then art becomes a redemptive opportunity. Same with literature and science and so forth and so on. Third point, which kind of jumps off that one, you want to equip them to learn to interact with diverse peoples, people groups and diverse people. We live in a pretty diverse world, do we not? In the old days, everyone kind of thought like us, talked like us, looked like us. If you're in a particular community, wherever you were on the planet. And, and yet we live in a very diverse, racially, ethnically, worldview-wise world. And if we can equip our kids to see the beauty of our world, the flaws of our world, and use the educational process to get other teachers or leaders to help to introduce them to that, we push them forward and really do them a huge service. It also provides opportunities to have your values reinforced by others. Now that reinforcement can be positive or negative. So for us, and you don't have to follow my lead on this, do whatever you want, just make sure you're thinking about it. But we felt it was more or less important to keep our kids in a Christian school environment in their elementary years. So most of them, not all of them went from JK to grade eight, but most of them did the majority of their uh, elementary school years in a Christian environment. But my thinking was, um, when they get into high school, they're still gonna be under my roof. Once they're done high school, they may or may not be under my roof for very long, but either way, they're gonna be adults. So I wanted to kind of put them in a, a laboratory, so to speak, in high school, so that they could learn to stand on their own two feet and learn to be exposed to the temptations and challenges of, of uh, teenagehood while they were still under my roof, and I still had a measure of control or heavy-duty influence over them. I also wanted my children to develop a heart for the lost. Now, so in sending my kids to a non-Christian school, they happened to go to a Catholic school just because it was close. Could have been a public school too, wouldn't have mattered to me. Uh, there's a risk. Like, are they going to fall in love with a non-Christian boy or girl? Are they going to start smoking weed in the back? Are they going to, you know, get involved in this or that? Are they going to tell me the truth? That's a risk. And at times you're like, oh, I don't know if it's working out very well. But overall, I would say for us it's worked. You know, there's been some road bumps along the way to reinforce those core values through the school in the childhood years, and then to put them in an environment where they're being exposed to untruth while they're still under my roof to help to equip them for moving out of the house and living on their own. Another point under education is to help them discover their gifts and talents to glorify God. So study as unto the Lord. If you're a good musician, use those skill sets as unto the Lord. If you're good at science, use those skill sets as unto the Lord. If you're good at math, use those skill sets as unto the Lord. I, I would just say this. I, I don't actually care what grades my kids get. I just really don't care. But I can't stand it when people throw away their own talents and gifts. That's when I, I just have no toleration for that at all. So back to my one kid, I know he's good at math. He won the science, technology, engineering, and math award in grade eight. I know he's good at math. 
So don't dawdle through high school when it comes to math. I was not good at math. He is. So if you're, you're pulling 60s or low 70s, that just drives me insane. But one of my girls, not good at math. So she's like really working her butt off to try to get like 60s. I'm fine with that. No problem at all. Even if she failed and had to redo it, wouldn't rock my boat at all. I wouldn't lose any sleep over that. As long as you're trying to your maximum potential to do whatever it is that you're doing. Just do your absolute best in those areas. Obviously within reason. Maybe absolute best is a bit of an exaggeration because you have to do other things in life. But do your best as unto the Lord. Don't fritter away your life. Don't throw away your gifts. So every philosophy, of course, of education from JK to grade 12 has drawbacks. So you, you have as your options homeschooling and public schooling and Catholic school, Christian school, private school. I would just say, know your reasons. Why are you sending your kid to the school you're sending your kid to? Or why are you putting them through that process? Why? Know without any ambiguity what the strengths and weaknesses are in those systems and how they help or hinder discipleship. And fan into flames the strengths and warn them and have those conversations about the weaknesses. So kids going through high school, hey, what'd you learn in science class? Obviously, what am I trying to do? I want to make sure they're processing the evolutionary teaching they're receiving. Right, from a Christian perspective. Um, who do you hang out with? Are you sharing your faith? How involved are you in school life? Those are the kind of conversations that we had to have a lot of with our children in high school because they were or are in an, an, a non-Christian environment. In all of this, let me just say this. Remember, I told you this last week, what are you raising? You're raising adults. You're not raising kids. You're raising adults. The goal is get them to adulthood. So your goal is to oversee the process. You are not responsible. Hear me now. You're not responsible to control the outcome. So let's say I put all of us into practice and one of my kids ends up with an atheist, as an atheist. I'm going to feel zero shame, zero responsibility for that. Zero. If I can stand before God and say, I did my best. I'm responsible to steward the process. I'm not responsible to control the outcome. What do we say in our church? Ownership is the enemy of stewardship. That's true when it comes to money, time, talents, treasures, your whole of life. You don't own your kids. God has entrusted them to you. They're always going to be your children. But in 18 short years, they're going to be adults. And they're going to leave and cleave to someone else. So obviously, every one of us that's a Christian parent would just love to have all of our children serve the Lord all the days of their lives. But the reality is some of them won't. And we're responsible to steward the process but not control the outcome. So let's take responsibility for what we are responsible for and then let God do what only God can do. What I want to do now is I want to talk to you about just some best practices for different age groups. And I'll try to run through this fairly quickly so we have time for a Q&A. So I've divided this up into two to six-year-olds, seven to ten, and so forth and so on. I will admit that my mind is very fuzzy on anything more than like three years ago. <laughs> so some of these things I may actually have in the wrong category. But um, like teaching them to drive. For some reason I had that 7 to 10, but then I realized that was it. <laughs> There's obviously overlap, but these are just generalities. I, I could talk to you about a lot of things, but I've just selected like four or five best practices, like if you were to say, when you're raising two to six-year-olds, what are like the top things that you would say are the most important in that age group? Let me tell you what I think. And these are in no particular order, but they're all important. Two to six-year-olds. Let boys be boys. Do not expect your boys to be civil. 
And I would also say it's a mistake to try to encourage them to always be civil. Now, the guys are like, yeah, I get it. Preach it, bro. And the moms are like, what are you talking about? Okay. I'm a man. Take my word for it. Um, little boys should not be wearing awesome clothes seven days a week. That's weird. Okay. Sundays is fine. School drama plays fine. If I see a boy that's like really dressed well all the time, guys, tell me, what is that? That's weird. Okay. That's weird. Don't expect them to have great hair. And um, don't expect them to eat everything that you feed them or to only eat what you feed them. Let them get outside and explore and get dirty. I think that's a really important age to let boys be boys. Obviously, they can be total animals. And so you have to provide some boundaries. But I would suggest to you that the fundamental problem in our culture is more toward trying to overly control, maybe even feminize boys and not allowing boys to be boys. So don't get so freaked out. Some things that my boys, I'll just tell you a few stories for fun. We're up at my dad's cottage many years ago, and there's this marshy area off to the side of his beach. And my boys are all out there with their shorts rolled up walking around. I'm like, what are you doing? We're trying to get leeches on our feet. <laughs> Why? Because we want to fish with them. Okay? That's kind of weird, right? I could have fl flipped out and said, you're going to get diseases, infections. I mean, leeches are kind of creepy, right? But I'm like, I don't really care. It's not a hill I'm going to die on. Let them get leeches on their feet, right? We have OHIP. Right? All honesty, I can tell you many, many times, uh, my, my parents both have medical backgrounds. I can tell you many, many times where my boys were doing something, and the, the thing that kind of stopped me from reacting, it sounds totally weird, but was if they're not going to be killed by it, they can probably be fixed. Okay? They can probably be fixed. Stitched cast goes on, whatever. So I'm going to let them get hurt because I think it's actually good for them. So let boys be boys. Another time, Simon had this habit of like never wearing underwear for a long time. And for some reason, he went through the track pant phase. And again, I don't really care because I don't really want my seven-year-old or six-year-old to look awesome. So he would go to school with track pants on and no underwear. The problem is he often had a hole in the crotch. Right? Um, wrestling in the yard. Now, I did have to put a stop to wrestling for a period of time because it was getting like very out of control. Okay? But a certain amount of wrestling is good. So I let them wrestle with their peers. I just didn't want my boys wrestling with each other because there's always an imbalance of power and showing off in that. But... Um, Levi, in particular, was our wrestler. He would literally, wasn't a huge communicator. He would go out, he'd meet a kid, and be on the ground wrestling, like, <laughs> literally like five, maybe ten minutes later. He doesn't even know this kid. Um, putting worms on hooks, stuff like that. Like, let boys be boys. I think it's really important in that age group to let boys be boys. With little girls, I had two of those, too. So I would say one of the dominant things that I had in mind for my girls is I wanted to compliment them because I know girls are, you know, they want to hear I'm pretty, I'm beautiful. But I was always hyper aware of not communicating to them that that's what is of fundamental importance to me. So um, we've sought to teach our girls a measure of modesty. Sometimes I've had to talk to them. I said, I don't like what you're wearing. But I want my girls to uh, primarily pursue godly role models rather than sexy role models. And so I reject the early sexualization of kids. I think that's unwise. I think you have to be very careful because a lot of times something comes into style and before long like everybody's wearing it and you don't think too much about it. And um, I don't want to be accusatory because I, I don't know where you all stand in this, but like something as simple as bikinis. I just, we just never let our girls wear bikinis because um, I know what bikinis look like through the eyes of a dude. And uh, if you knew that, girls, you probably wouldn't let your girls wear bikinis either. 
So those are the kinds of things that we've had to have a chat with our girls about. And obviously it can create some challenges for them because they kind of have to find alternatives. Uh, in terms of raising kids at that age too, uh, two to six, we're talking about personal salvation, about baptism. We're praying in their presence for their salvation, you know, especially by the time they're three, four, five, six. A lot of kids are asking some deep questions. And if you've had that conversation and kept that going, you're heightening the chances that they're going to profess faith in Jesus Christ at a young age, again, from a human perspective. Age two to six, I would say this is not really applicable before the age of two because you're just kind of shoving pablum in their mouths and changing diapers and trying to make sure they're bundled up and in the car seat. You got all these hooks and straps and everything else the law requires attached to them. But by the time they, they, they get to be two, three, four, five, and six, that's when you're really starting to see their strengths and weaknesses, are you not? And so from I would say from like zero to two, the way I parented my five children was like pretty much exactly the same. But it started to change from like two to six. And that's when I really started to think about how I parent each child according to their own bent. Remember in the Proverbs, raise up a child according to the way they should go, which means according to their bent. And when they're older, they will not depart. Every kid has different strengths and weaknesses. I have three kids that I would say are innately good communicators. I have two that weren't. I have um, uh, four kids that are extroverts, one that's an introvert. I have um, one that is into math and science. Probably uh, the rest are more literary art side of things. Um, I have four kids that are very hands-on, building, kinesthetic, putting things together, one that's really not. So you got all this diversity, right? And you have to parent each child according to their bent. You have to see their strengths and weaknesses and make the adjustment. Some kids can handle a, a, a little harsher form of discipline. Some you have to circle in a little more. Some need a lot of reinforcement. Some need illustrations when you call them out on something. I was talking to one of my kids and I said, what was one of the most beneficial things that I helped you with when you were younger? You told me I wasn't a good communicator, but I didn't even know what you meant by that until you gave me some examples, right? So another kid, you might just say, you're not a good communicator. You need to communicate better and they just get it. So some kids need more examples. Some maybe don't need so much of that. And um, here's number five for two to six. Uh, some of you are going to hate me for this. Okay, a big advocate of giving your kid a pet to take care of, even if you don't like it, okay, even if you don't like it. There's a lot of pets. You can buy a cricket, okay? You can buy a hamster, a gerbil, a goldfish, a cat, a dog, a hamster, a rabbit, a chicken, right, whatever. We have a couple goats, but I think... We, I think early on we, we bought pets just because we liked them at first. But later on I started to realize how having pets, especially for a couple of my kids, was really important in teaching them responsibility. I, I have to take care of something. Now if they don't do a good job, it's not like the end of the world. You didn't like you lose a human life. You know, you lost like your goldfish or something. But um, Throughout history, children have been exposed to animals. Now we pack everybody in our concrete jungle, and some kids grew up and they've, they've never even had a goldfish. I was talking to a kid later and never had anything. Parents didn't like it. Okay, well, I get it. You may not like it. But there's a lot of things I don't like about parenting. But I think it's important, especially when the kids are young, to give them opportunities to be responsible for something else that's alive. Okay? So that would be some, just some random things, ages 2 to 6. 7 to 10. Okay, seven to ten. Number one, teach them to start to fight their own fights. I don't ever remember going to the school or talking to a neighborhood kid about something they did from the time the kids are about seven onward. Okay, fight your own fights. I would guide them through that. I would say, okay, this is maybe how you could respond. This is how you could ask. So there's a kid that was down our street. My boys were young. They had a jackknife. They forgot it on the curb. They walked home. Oh, forgot my jackknife, went back, and the kids down the street has it. It's mine. Well, clearly he knew it was theirs. It's ours. No, I'm taking it home, right? 
Well, I could have gone down there and banged them the door. That's my kid's jackknife. I'm their dad. Give it back. I'm not doing that. Okay. I want them to learn to have those conversations. Go talk to the kid. Come back. It didn't work. That happened for like two years. And eventually the kid became a Christian and gave it back to them. So um, teach them to fight their own fights. Uh, through no influence of us, by the way. He, he became a believer. Can you imagine that? It's pretty awesome. Secondly, at this age, now you're talking about deep matters of the faith. You're talking about deep matters of the faith. Do not talk down to your children. What did I say last week? Talk to them as if they're at least a year or one level older than they are. Like, put the cookies in the top shelf. So you're talking to a six-year-old, talk to them like they're seven or eight. You're talking to an eight-year-old, talk to them like they're nine or ten. You're talking to a 13-year-old, treat them like they're 15. You're talking to a 16-year-old, treat them like they're 18. Have the conversation so they can start to think beyond their uh, normal capacity. So start talking about deep matters of the faith. I would say my mother was awesome at that. One of the things that helped to shape my theological mind more than anything else was my mother having incessant conversations with me about the things of God. Now, um, mom might eventually watch this video, but I would just say most of the things my mom talked to me about, I don't even agree with her anymore on it. But that's not the point. The point is that it shaped my desire to think through deep and meaningful things. So have those conversations with your children. Move from teaching them God's word to getting them to do it themselves. So I said to you last week, at the risk of sounding like a non-Christian parent, I don't do devotions with my kids. We did that when they were younger. But from around the age of six, seven, eight, hours, it's like, it's on you now. Are you, so it's more like, are you reading your Bible? Are you studying your Bible? What are you reading? What are you learning from the Bible? I ask my kids those questions probably at least once a month each. But I don't do the work for them. I don't sit down, this is your devotional guy, little Johnny. Make sure you read it and report back to me on it. I'm putting the onus on them to start to get their nose into God's word and study it. Fourth, let them know about the dangers and challenges of the world. No topic is out of bounds. Use discretion in the details. I mentioned that earlier under a separate point. But again, I would just stress, let them know about the dangers and challenges of the world. Like, tell them about sexual abuse early. Don't freak them out. But say, these are the things we want you to be aware of. If you're sleeping over at someone's house or someone approaches you or whatever it might be. Just be aware that this, there's something out there called sexual abuse. What is that? I don't wait till they're 14 to tell them that. I tell them when they're young. Um, I tell them about drugs. This is drugs. This is alcoholism. This is whatever it might be. These are the things you might... Pornography. These are the things... I don't start talking to people about pornography when they're 16. Like, how dumb is that? You talk to them about it earlier. You say, we live in a world where people take their clothes off and put it online and send out dirty pictures and all that kind of stuff. And you're going to reach a phase where you might actually think that's kind of awesome and attractive and interesting and fascinating, but it will erode your soul. It'll erode your soul. It will ruin your ability to have good sex when you're married. It will ruin your ability to have good intimacy with people. You just be open about it. I'm not showing them pictures. I'm exercising discretion. But I'm talking with them about it very early. And again, I would say, I learned that from my parents, because that's one thing they did a really good job at, and so we've done that with our kids. And then, as I mentioned earlier, move from tangible rewards to strong verbal encouragement. Moving into the tweener years, 11, 12. Anybody got any tweeners? 11 and 12. All right. So here are some things. In no particular order. Teach them adult skills. Here's some things I wrote down how to cut the grass, how to cook, how to clean, how to shovel snow, how to take out the garbage, how to put things together, build things, owning and feeding animals. But here's what I want to add to that, without supervision. So before that, you've probably already taught these things. Here's how to make a grilled cheese sandwich. Here's how to make soup. Here's how to make craft dinner, whatever it might be. But I would say by the age of 11 or 12, they should be doing those things without supervision. So my... My wife, those of you that know my wife, she loves to cook. She's pretty good at it. And Kezia and Abigail 
gravitated toward that. We didn't just teach the girls that, but the girls gravitated <laughs> toward that. They could make a full, full dinner from beginning to end from scratch easily by the age of 10, easily. I remember building a deck at our last house and Abby was eight. She made a cake from scratch. Like I'm not talking about box, mix in the water and bake it. She made it from scratch and brought it out with icing and everything a couple hours later. That's, that's historically normal. That's normal. It's abnormal because we've delayed child development so long. She's like, wow, that kid's 10. He's cutting the grass. What if he slips and his foot goes under the lawnmower? We have hospitals. Right? So, at some point he's going to, believe me, he will be better at it if he starts young than if he starts later. He'll always be a klutz. <laughs> Cooking, cleaning, shoveling the snow, putting the garbage out, building things, owning and feeding animals. Um, by the age of 11 or 12, this is before they're a teenager, they should be able to do those things without you supervising them. Okay? So I should be able to Call home. Hey, mom and I are going to be late. We've got some appointments. Abby, make dinner for everybody. No problem. Happens all the time she makes dinner. Okay? She's 13 now because she's doing it for quite a while. Secondly, this is the age where you start to emphasize hygiene. Not super concerned about that when they're six. Okay? But age 11 or 12, their bodies are developing. You're teaching them hygiene. You all know girls intuitively pick that up. Boys have to be taught it, okay? Teach them hygiene. This is a deodorant stick, you know, wear it. Um, shave this stupid little mustache off, right? Looks ridiculous, okay? Um, shave the mustache off. Brush your hair, right? So I actually do this to boys in our church. And I don't know what parents always think about it, but if I see like a boy in our church that's like, 12, 13, he's walking around, I'll say, do you not own a hairbrush? I'll just ask him straight out, right? Now, some of you are super sensitive, might say that's bullying. I would say that's socialization, right? I'm actually doing him a favor. <laughs> Pastor, I noticed you didn't brush your hair. You might want to consider doing that, okay? Teaching them about hygiene. 11 or 12, now we're talking more about the details of sex and relationships and reminding them that no, you can't date. So just by way of an observation, there's a weird little phase that girls go through when they're 11 and 12 where they want to date. And then when they're 13 and 14, they just, they don't. And then they do again. But there's this like pre-dating phase. So Abigail's in grade, was in grade six and like half the school's dating. But like nobody's dating in grade eight because now they realize it's weird. But some parents think that's cute. Oh, little, there's a little boyfriend or girlfriend. No. No, you do not have a boyfriend or girlfriend. You are not dating at that age. But I'm going to tell you about sex, and I'm going to tell you about relationships. And Susie and I are the sort um, who like to be, um, if one of our kids gets like super freaked out whenever we kiss or hug, so like 90% of the time we kiss or hug deliberately in front of her, okay? because I think deep down she actually likes it. Right. So appropriate displays of human sexuality are really important for kids to see. I've talked to adults, you know, they're getting ready for marriage or in a marriage class and their parents are Christians. And they've like never seen their parents hold hands, never seen their kids' parents kiss, never seen their kids hug, their parents hug. It's really important to start to not only teach it, but model good, healthy sexuality. Fourth, if you don't know this by now, by like age 11 or 12, you are not making their lunch. You are not making their lunch. Okay, moms, do not make your kids lunches. You are not getting them up in the morning. Okay? They, they have an alarm clock. Um, you are not washing their clothes. Nope, not doing those things. Oh, but I love being a mom. <laughs> I love being a mom. Nope, you're making a disciple, you're raising an adult. So you're going to start to let out that leash, right? Why did I say moms? Because dads don't care. <laughs> so I have one son that pays his sister a dollar a day to make his lunch. Okay? So that's their thing. If they want to have a business arrangement, that's fine. But... Um, 
you know, I, I would say with few exceptions, you know, maybe on their birthday or once in a while, there's a, they're sick, you do you a little differently. Just things like, let, make them do that. It's, it's really good for them. It's good for them, folks. It's good for them. Believe me, it's good for them. 11 or 12 is also where you're encouraging them to get ready for middle school. That's, uh, you guys familiar with the concept of rites of passage? Rites of passage is something you're not allowed to do before a certain age. I asked my boys in the way here, what would you say were some of the things that we did that were super helpful? They both mentioned rites of passage, right? So um, at 13, we always, the parent of the same gender always takes a kid away for a couple days and they look forward to that, right? Or um, when you get to that age, then you can go, as I mentioned earlier, into that youth group. When our church was smaller, we were more loosey-goosey about that. So you'd find like younger kids in the groups. And I'm like, no, stop doing that. Oh, but they want to be. They're, they're siblings or they're, they're from a non-Christian home. want to evangelize them. There's all kinds of reasons. No, don't let them go. They're going to be more likely to not stick it out if it's not framed up as a rite of passage than if it's framed up as a rite of passage. So we would um, certainly emphasize that. And we made middle school youth a rite of passage. That you're not allowed in that before you're what? How old? Grade six. How old is that? Twelve? Yeah, twelve. So getting them ready for that. And then we have uh, the 13 to 19 category. So I've kind of divided this up again. So age-specific considerations. Um, 13 to 14, teenage, we like to celebrate, okay, you're 13. 16 is like the sweet 16, but... We tend to emphasize more the 13 and the 18. So 13, you're becoming a teenager. 18, you're becoming an adult. So 13, uh, we would take the child of the same sex away for the weekend and, uh, or an overnighter. Um, I don't know, Josiah and I went to Michigan. Levi and I went to Point Pelee. Simon and I went to Pelee Island camping or something. I don't know what Susie did. Probably went to a mall. Um, <laughs> But we would take them away, and on that weekend, I would just kind of say, you know, have a little chat. You're a teenager now, and I know you're ready for this because we've raised you um, to be ready for it. And now you need to act like a teenager, and I just want to remind you, here's some unique things you're going to experience in the coming years. And we just have that conversation with them, and they love it. Okay, It's a huge win. By 13 or 14, they're picking their own clothes and styles, not even really weighing into that unless it's immoral. I'm not telling you how to dress, what style. I'm not trying to shape you into some sort of a model or poster child of a particular ilk. Not interested in that. So 13 or 14, you pick your own clothes, and um, I just don't fight them on that unless it's extreme behavior. 13 or 14, you take full. I mean full responsibility for your appearance. I will freely ridicule you if you look foolish. But I, I really don't want to be saying, have you brushed your teeth? You know, did you comb your hair? You, you're emphasizing that earlier, but notice what I'm suggesting here. You teach it at one phase. You release it at another phase. You don't teach and release all at once. You teach it early and then you release. So we've already taught this. So 13 and 14, that's yours. And I start saying things like, you know, in five years, you're going to be an adult. In five years, you're going to be an adult. And then in four years, you're going to be an adult. And then in three years, you're going to, we tell our kids this all the time. In two years, you're going to be an adult. Because now I want them looking up to that next big rite of passage. Uh, for, girl, uh, for boys, I teach impulse control. And for girls, I teach emotional control. So I would just say, generally speaking, there are some exceptions to the rule, even in our own family. But I would say impulse control is more of an issue for boys at this age. Like they kind of act all manly and then they act like weirdos. So, um, you know, they're around their peers and all of a sudden they're wrestling on the floor in front of all the girls. And the girls are like, who's this weirdo, right? So I have conversations about that. Dude, that's weird. Um, stop doing that. Usually someone tells me, so that's how I find out about it. Uh, impulse control, um, whether it's a physical contact. The boys that get into physical wrestling matches and take it too far. Okay, you're done. Stop it. So impulse control. 
overeating, eating junk food, eating food. Susie's got this drawer, it's like lunches only. Those of you that provide your kids with lunches, you know, you get the drawer, you get the granola bars and all that kind of junk in there, right? So they can make lunches. Well, that's for lunches. That's not after-school snacks. That's not Saturday afternoon snacks because they just devour it all. Girls kind of get that, but boys lack impulse control. They're in the corner eating a bag of chips or something, right? So you got to get into that. Girls, emotional control. Nothing wrong with being emotional, but being out of control emotional is like never beneficial. So uh, my one daughter is, I never had to work with her on that. But my other daughter is just innately more emotional. So I would talk to her about it. Like, you're driving me nuts. You're driving people nuts. Your behavior is not appropriate. You're overreacting. It's not a big deal. You have to say it over and over and over again. Working on impulse control and uh, emotional control. And then I'm, I'm, I encourage friendships. I'm really big into friendships at this age, but I would just say this. From 13 onward, I am like super tuned in to the influences of those friends. I want my kids to have maybe like three or four really good friends. I want to know who they are. I want to know what their stories are, even if they're brats. I just want to know that because I want to know which way the influence is going. So I'm super tuned into that. And we would also say that just because you have friends doesn't mean it's time to discard your families. So that's the age where they can often start to just, they just want to be around their friends. So we really up our games in the fun department. So our kids want to be around their family. We have a lot of fun around the table. There's a lot of humor. There's a lot of jesting and goofing around and then some serious talk. So I've always just got this vibe that the kids like being at the dinner table when we have opportunities to do that. And that's helped them not to discard their family for their friends. Although sometimes, admittedly, we've had to tell them, okay, you don't need to be going to someone's house Friday night, Saturday night, and all Sunday afternoon. Like, what about us? Right? So... Just kind of emphasizing that 13 or 14 is really early, really important. 15 and 16, getting them ready to drive and get their license. I think it's a huge win to encourage your kids to get their driver's license. It's a rite of passage, right? We've been driving cars for 100 years. So the kid that's like 20, still haven't got their beginners, like, come on, man. Like, get a life. What if someone calls you tomorrow and offers you a job? Oh, I, I got to go through like two years of driver's ed now or whatever. So get your license and get a job. We encourage all our kids to get a part-time job outside of the home. Oh, but it interferes with their schooling. No, it doesn't. It's part of it. It's part of their schooling. It's part of their education. When they finish high school, what are they going to do? Maybe go to college or university. When they finish that, what are they going to do? They're going to get a job. So if the result is a job, why would I not be teaching them how to have a job as part of the process that's intended to get them a job? But again, if you're like, oh, grades are all the most important thing. Okay? My kid's got to get a scholarship. I can guarantee you this. Most of your kids aren't going to get scholarships. Okay? Or the amount they're going to get for a scholarship, they can earn that in high school. And they won't need the scholarship. So it kind of balances itself out. If you can save up 10, 15, 20 grand in high school, why do you need a 10, 15, 20,000 dollar scholarship? Best of both worlds. They learn to work and they still get to go to school if they want. I also at this age am really sensitive to isolationism. 15 and 16, I would say, are the years and you're most likely for kids to isolate themselves from their peers and their family from you. So this is when they're like hiding out in their bedroom, they're on their phone a lot, you don't really know who they're hanging out with, and you need to really move in on that and confront hyper-isolationism. Where, where were you doing? I was in my room. Well, get out of your room. I was just doing homework. Okay, fine. If you're doing a bit of homework, but do it at the dinner table, or you don't need to do it in your room every night, or you don't need to be on your phone, or you don't need to be FaceTiming people every night. So 15 and 16, I think are really vulnerable years and you need to confront isolationism and make sure they're growing in the context of relationships. 15 and 16, they're paying for all their own hobbies. They're paying for their phones. Do not pay for your children's cell phones when they're 15 and 16. Do not do it. Do not pay 
for their hockey, their soccer, their karate, whatever it might be. They pay for their own incidental. So we pay for the core. Okay, you have a place to live, a bed to sleep in. We pay for your food. Obviously, your insurances are covered. Anything that's like fun and extra, you're going to be an adult in two to three years. You, Kezia just bought a $3,000 car two months ago, blew the timing belt, and has a $2,000 bill to pay next week. I'm not paying any of it. Could I? Yeah, I could pay for it. But she's going to have to pay for it. Why? Because she's an adult. And if I do the soft-hearted father thing and I run, oh, I'll pay for it for you. And I, believe me, I actually want to. But if I pay for it, then what I basically said is I'm delaying your maturity. Because when you're 25, I'm definitely not paying for it. When you're 35, I'm certainly not paying for it. So she's going to be paying for that. I feel bad for her, but she's going to have to pay for that. So I'm certainly not paying for her cell phone. I'm certainly not paying for her time eating out. And yet my kids have been around other kids. They're, they always have money in their pocket, but they've never had a job. Like, where does that come from? Like, well, if you have money as a parent, you probably made some good decisions to get it. So teach your kids those same good decisions to get their own money. And they're going to be more successful long term than you taking the money that you've earned and just giving it to them for everything. So give them the funds they need in, in, in the form of a house to live in, a bed to sleep in, an education, all that kind of stuff. But start to get them to uh, pay for the incidentals. Weekly parental checkups talks. I would say at this point it's pretty important once a week for you to be having some sort of a meaningful talk with each one of your children. Here's another point. My wife actually brought this to my attention. Um, this is one of the things that she, she thought was really important. Um, and I, again, if you're in a single parent home, obviously you have to rely upon men in the church and so forth to do this. But 15, 16, what would you say is one of the primary roles of mothering? Just the primary role as a mother? Hmm? <laughs> laundry? <laughs> Who said laundry? Oh, Gerald. I want to hear from the women. Starts with an N. Okay, nurturing, right? So. You're 15 and 16. Are you going to be nurturing your 25-year-old? Living in your basement? <laughs> Putting his socks on for him in the morning? No, right? Now you're two years away from adulthood. So this is what you have to do as moms. Don't make this mistake. You need to step back. You need to step back. And you need to let dad step forward. So my observation between my wife and I is that while we co-parent, frankly, she's more important when they're younger. More, far more important than I am. When they're in their mid to late teens, I'm more important. And then when they're 18, it goes back to equal. But there is something about the mom stepping back in her nurturing, starting to throttle back in that caregiving, and the dad to step forward in terms of offering direction and greater authority in that person's life that breeds respect and that really helps to develop a healthy, mature, balanced adult. I grew up in a home where dad wasn't around, so by God's grace, other men stepped in and did that for me. Like, they called me out on stuff. I can remember distinct times being so offended that a couple of the men that mentored me would, like, call me out on stuff. My first response would be, like, well, you're not my dad. Oh, yeah, you kind of are, right? But I remember their lessons just like I would remember it if it was my own dad saying it. So really important for moms not to continue to uh, act like they're raising a small child when the person's like 15 or 16 years old. 17 to 18. They are now fully functioning as adults in all areas with you as a safety net. So especially 17. Fully functioning as adults in all areas. You're still their safety net, but... In virtually every area of life, they are now exercising independence. They manage their own finances. They pay for their own vehicles. They pay their own bills. They manage their own schedules. They determine their own curfews. And if you do that, then I would say from the age of 17 onward is an appropriate age for them to start dating, not before that. Why that age? Because now they're functioning as adults. they got to hit 18 to be adults, but they're functioning as adults. And so we've said to all of our kids, your 17th birthday, strangely, like 
two of them actually started dating on their 17th birthday. <laughs> We're really pushing at this age intentionality and career choices. They need to make a decision. I, um, I would just say that what we've told our kids is you will not pursue a degree or a certificate that has no goal in mind. So you're not going and doing a BA in nothingness. Now you're welcome to do that, but you're also welcome to move out. So when you're under our roof, we're, we, we don't mind kind of having you under our roof during those college or university years. But um, you are not pursuing a degree in nothingness. You're not going to be the kid that goes to a school for one year, switches programs year two, switches programs year three. You do that once you're out of my house. Then you can do whatever you want. But when you're under my roof, you're an adult now. I have zero responsibility. Now living in my house is a total gift. It's a total gift. You need to be definitive. You need to make a decision. What are you going to pursue? And so I've always encouraged my kids, whether they pursue the trades, college, or university, to pursue something that actually leads to a career or a job that has an outcome attached to it. And I would say at 17 and 18, I, I make a mental shift because I'm exercising authority as the dad. I go from like a lot of telling to maybe 10% telling and 90% asking. So I, I, like I rarely tell Levi anything because he's 17, he's coming up to 18. I rarely tell Casey anything. I don't even know if I do tell Casey anything anymore. I just ask questions. How are you doing in this area? What's your relationship like? How's your finances? How's school? How's work? And I just, if they want to give me information, then I just respond to it. I don't tell them. You know what that also does? Communicates them, I respect them. People rise to the occasion. They know I respect them. They know I trust them. They know I, I believe they, they are adults. They can act like adults. And, it, and they actually rise to the challenge. It's like if someone always says you're an idiot, you're going to act like an idiot. But if someone tells you you can, you can succeed, you're far more likely to succeed. And I tell them when they're 18, you're an adult now. The boys love that. Totally freaked my daughter out. Okay. And uh, Josiah's like, I can call you a bro now. All right. Casey's like, I don't know if I'm ready. <laughs> no, you're an adult now. 19 and 20, I just have two things. I don't do any telling. I just advise. Don't do any telling. I just advise. And I shift my thinking. I don't see myself as being like in any way shape or form responsible for my 20-year-old. Not at all. I, everything I do for him is a gift. I'm not responsible for him. I'm not responsible to register him for the next semester, to pay his tuition, um, any of that. He's a great guy. He's learned, but the first year of uh, his college life, I gave him like 80 bucks. Uh, I don't remember if it was weekly or monthly, but I gave him a, an amount of money for groceries and incidentals. And then he came home with a new guitar. Where'd you get that? Oh, I bought it. He's never got a dime from me since. Right? A guitar. Yeah. So, not to trash the guy, but that was a couple years ago. He had to learn the lesson. Totally on his own. I don't pay any of his bills. And uh, give him advice. But um, he is an adult. And I'm no more responsible for him than I am for my brothers. So uh, I would say to you that emotionally that's a very difficult place to get to, especially if you don't think that way. I can say it very definitively. That's, that's not, those aren't easy decisions that I've made, but I absolutely believe in them. Why? Because I'm not driven by my emotions. I'm driven by my values. And my end goal is to make disciples. And I want them, therefore, to be adult-like in their behavior. All right? So hopefully that's been helpful. We've got a few minutes. Let me buzz through some of these questions. I was thinking about matching my kids' education fund. They raise half. We contribute the other half. Thoughts? I would say that's a good idea. No problem with that. I just would urge you not to pay for it all. How can I help uh, him enjoy high school? He's having trouble connecting with other kids and lessons that's being taught. Um, son has a negative attitude when trying new things. How can I help him be more open and positive coming to church, going to high school, youth, going to the retreat? 
I would start with the why question. I don't know how old this person is. I would ask why you're having trouble. And um, I would just kind of think about his strengths and weaknesses. Is it a maturity issue? Is it a past hurt issue? Is it just a flat out big old fat excuse? Is he distracted with other things? Is he fearful of relationships? And then depending on how I answered that question, I would reframe the next level as a positive opportunity. Always speak of growing up as positive. The next level is always positive. It's great to grow up. It's great to get up. It's great to be 13. It's great to be 16. It's great to be 20. It's great to be married. It's great to be a grandparent, whatever it is. Always speak of the next stages positively. Now you might say, well, we do that. But emotionally, you might communicate something very different. So if you're over-parenting, you're communicating, oh, I want you to be a baby. I want you to stay at home. I want you to be reliant upon me. I, wa I want you close. That's a bad move. And it doesn't create an emotionally healthy person. Let him know what's expected and correct bad attitudes immediately. I'm, I have like no latitude for bad attitudes. So how do I handle that? You got a bad attitude, cut it out. They don't cut it out, there's consequences. So I would say lots of talk to understand why. Express concern for his future. You are, if they're younger and they are reluctant to participate in something that you think is really important like church, treat it the exact same way you would school. If your kid's like, I don't want to go to school, what do you say? You're going. So if education is one piece of the puzzle to raise up a mature adult disciple of Christ, and church is another part of that, then why would you treat education with more zeal than you would church. You're going. You're going to have a good attitude. You're not going to be a little jerk when you go. You're not going to do it. So ditch the bad attitude. I would then say, just to summarize, discipline attitudes and actions. Discipline both. Don't just discipline actions. Discipline attitudes. So, oh, I can't believe you swore. I'm disciplining that. Why are you such a jerk lately? I'm disciplining that. Discipline, actions, and attitudes. We have not raised kids looking forward, want to change things up, but are nervous of the pushback, etc. How do you suggest we proceed with change? Um, I jotted down, let them grow with you. Um, have a, so I would do this in three steps. First of all, you sit them down and you apologize for your own inadequacies. And then you wait. You have no plan of attack. First step, you sit down. I just want to let you know, Mom and Dad are really sorry. We didn't kind of do things right. We're sorry. That's it couple weeks later, whenever it is, you sit down and say, hey, in light of that previous conversation we had, here's some values that we think are really important that you're going to kind of start seeing in our parenting a lot more. Then you wait. Conversation number three, you start teaching them and modeling it and reinforcing the application of those values. But if it just starts with, oh, you had this epiphany and now you're changing your parenting style from yesterday to today, you're going to get a lot of resistance. And I think just that vulnerable act of acknowledging that you did some things wrong is really, really important. I would just say in general, if you've never apologized to your kids, you're not modeling the values of Christ to them. So you should have times you're like, yeah, I kind of blew it there. How do I help my, um, how do I help mature my immature teenager? I would say treat them more mature more maturely than, than, they, than they are. Uh, ask mature questions. And you have to keep doing it. Because some people aren't good at answering questions until you've asked like a thousand questions. And then they become good at it. And uh, give them mature responsibilities. That would be a third one. The fourth would be, say it. You're kind of immature. Grow up. So I, those would be my four pieces of advice. One of our kids needs to be pushed more than others in terms of worship service. How do we make them serve? Um, okay, some thoughts. Motivate. I would say motivate them. Don't make them, primarily. Ask questions about their heart, their motive, their thoughts. Remove distractions. A lot of people don't, a lot of kids are too busy. They have too many things going on. Their minds are spinning. And when you start to remove things, they might lean in 
more to the things that really matter. I would also say allow them to go through pain. Pain and brokenness drive worship and service in large part. So if you're like, well, I don't know if I want my kid goes to youth group, he doesn't fit in. Great. Let him not fit in for a year or two. It'll be good for him. He doesn't have friends. He doesn't get a lot of the teaching. Who cares? He's going to eventually. Don't, don't bend to your child's wishes. You parent out of your, your values and never violate your values. When you do, immediately repent. Don't bend your values. Don't let your kid manipulate you into thinking, well, things are worse than they are. Next question, advice for when you have children 50% of the time and the other 50% of the time they don't get the same exposure to your values and beliefs under parenting style. I would just say use 100% of the 50% of the time you have. So if you have them 50% of the time, do the same thing that you would do if you had them 100% of the time. Be strategic and let them know it. Some specific thoughts. Foster thoughtfulness. Get them evaluating and assessing. Don't, if you come, I remember one of the challenges in our upbringing was my dad remarried. I had step-siblings. And when you're with mom, sometimes she'd say negative things about dad. When you're with dad, sometimes he'd say negative things about mom. That's not a win for anybody. It's very immature and childish, actually. However, what I think would be appropriate, let's say you're a Christian, your kid spends half their time with an unbeliever or someone that doesn't share your value. Ask, like anticipate what kinds of things they're probably struggling with and ask questions about those things. So what's your perspective on? How are you coping with? How have you handled this? And just get them thinking about it. So what you're doing is actually sending them back to the other family with um, the greater capacity to actually assess what it is they're being exposed to. Be values-focused, not people-focused, is what I wrote down. Focus on values, not people. Focus on values, not circumstances. Focus on values, not the time that you do or do not have them. I'm sure I'll have more questions. It's a little longer than that, but there wasn't a question there. If you're able to go back in time and change one th a way you parented when you were young, what would it be? Well, I'm still young. <laughs> should say younger, right? So I would say I would express less anger, uh, less, fewer displays of frustration. I would have prayed more and exercised more patience and spent more time with each kid. So rather than parenting out of the circumstances, I, I would have, if I were to rewind the clock, I would say I would step back and not allow the circumstances to dictate my responses but I would be more aware of the values that I have and try to allow those to dictate my responses to the situation. How do you handle the conversation of masturbation with a prepubescent child? All right, yeah, thank you for that one. Okay, whoever wrote that one. Um, first of all, you probably want to de describe what it is or explain is maybe a better word than describe. So I would just say it. I would probably say something like, you know, we live in a sexualized world. There's a lot of different... Um, sexual temptations, and I would probably include it in a list. So there's um, pornography and fantasizing, which is often expressed through self-gratification. People often call that masturbation. There's um, girls or guys that will hit on you that don't know the Lord and that want something from you. I would include it in a list, and I would just make them aware that these are some of the challenges that they're going to experience. And then I would encourage them to... Um, you know, exercise purity in that area and be accountable to uh, their godly friends and to the parent of the same gender. So I would not embarrass them about that. I would not like be overly graphic or anything, but I would just have the conversation. Uh, how do you instill motivation in a child lacking self-motivation less rewarded? That's similar to a previous question, um, but here are some thoughts. I would definitely pray for their heart, heart change. I would remove rewards and opportunities. And I would, um, I would use verbals to them and in their presence, especially if you have other kids, to let them hear what you're looking for. So this might seem counterintuitive, but I have no problem with saying, um, 
Levi, you know, Simon is actually really good in this area. You could actually learn from him. Kasia, Abby excels in this area. You could really learn from them. You're like, well, that's comparison. Oh, well, I don't have a problem with that at all. I don't have a problem with positive comparison because I, I even it out over the course of time. But if I had a child that was uh, unmotivated, I would say, you know, I, I see other kids doing this. I think you can do a better job. Um, your sister, your brother is really accelerating this area and I see you stalling. I'd like to see you up your game in this area. Let them know what your expectations are. Don't be so worried about their feelings. Let them know what your expectations are. Pray for the heart, and then if they're obstinate, remove rewards and opportunities. Final question, how to disciple a teenager completely set in non-belief due to a lack of religion in childhood? No exposure to it in family setting. Um, you can still discipline any child, even an unbelieving child, in basic expectations, courtesies, and responsibilities. So those, don't, those aren't just applicable to Christian kids. So there's honoring your mother and father, household chores, doing your homework, taking out the garbage. Those aren't innately Christian. So you can still reinforce positive courtesies. I would let them know you think they're lost. I would let them know that you th these are the biblical consequences of rejecting Jesus, i.e. hell, loss of rewards in this life. And, if, and I would pray for them. So you're, you're not only um, parenting them at that point, but you're evangelizing them. Remove privileges and um, pray for them and evangelize them. So share the gospel with them and then live the gospel out in front of them. So that's it. For the sake of time, I'm going to let you go. But I hope that this has been helpful for you in addition to our time together last week. I'll stick around for a few minutes if you have additional questions. But thanks for coming. And don't feel, I'll just say this before you leave, don't feel a huge weight of responsibility to put all this stuff into practice starting tomorrow. But just start to work at it, right? And just let the Lord bring to your mind what you need to be brought to your mind. Okay, so God bless you all.